This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. You're listening to Fun Friday. My name is Jeff Sandu. When the world seems to be falling apart, MSP's resident doom box, Matt Armitage, likes to pop up and remind us that technology are somehow making our lives better. It's a strange time to be saying it, but science is sick here on MSP. Matt, you're the bright spot against a dark sky, aren't you? Well, hey, Jeff. I mean, it's pretty much the only time that I get to shine. Uh, I kind of like to think of myself as, I don't know, the darkness before the dawn. So I'm here to cast some black light illumination on the world around us. You want to dazzle and destroy us first? Uh, Well, some might cry amazing. Some might cry uh, Skynet and the singularity are upon us with this story. But uh, researchers at Google have created a robot that can actually teach itself how to walk. Now, that might not sound amazing. Uh, Obviously, a lot of creatures are born knowing how to walk. Humans are actually one of the few species that give birth to mewling meat bags that are incapable of doing anything for themselves. But um, traditionally, AI has not been very good at teaching itself how to do stuff. Uh, Teaching robots how to walk has usually involved humans intervening to physically pick robots up every time that they fall. But aren't these reinforcement learning systems usually run in VR simulations first? Yeah, because things like robots are often, you know, very delicate, they're very expensive. So the last thing you want is them falling all over the place. So a lot of the modelling is done in uh, virtual reality. But That requires us to have really simple, straightforward environments. It's very hard to model um, even the the unevenness of the piece of ground outside your house, you know, something that's covered in bits of grass, pebbles, uh, or something like the lack of uniformity in a wooden staircase. Because our brains respond to that naturally, they automatically correct our gait. Uh, But that doesn't happen with uh, robots as they're learning. So in previous trials where a similar approach was tried, The robot uh, managed to teach itself how to walk in a couple of hours, but the human handlers had to intervene, like I said, hundreds of times over to rewrite the machine every time it kind of stumbled or fell. So this time around, the Google team rewrote the algorithms to limit uh, the the test movements the machine would make so they could try and sort of minimise accidents that way. But surely it must have fallen sometimes. Well, I don't know whether you can call this cheating. I mean, they hard-coded another algorithm in the robot to make it easier for it to get back up without assistance. Uh, and there is video online of the machine as it learns to walk, and it really is quite astonishing. I mean, it looks like uh, a little zebra foal uh, getting, uh, you know, being born and taking its first steps. And suddenly, you know, in just over half an hour, it's gone from trying to stand to actually walking uh, at 72 minutes. You don't have to watch the the whole video, by the way. It's condensed. <laughs> um, it could con- confidently walk in multiple directions. And after 80 minutes, it could walk backwards in a straight line and that's something that a lot of us can't even do with our cars after driving for like 20 years. Now is this the start of the singularity with robot eggs dropped all over the world and transforming into these killing machines within minutes? Wow that went dark fast even for this show. Um, I mean it's a good step towards that future if that is what you're looking for but um, in reality the machines still need 
a laboratory setting. They rely on a motion capture system to tell them about the world around them. Uh, so they're not really autonomous in that sense. But it is a step towards real world learning. Uh, as scary as it sounds, you know, 5G technology is going to put machines and sensors pretty much everywhere. That means we're going to see billions and billions of these things. So it probably won't be feasible to have humans teach every single one. Uh, much better that they are able to learn independently and, of course, from each other. Well, there you are. Another totally not scary science story from Matt. Uh, anything else you want to frighten us with? Uh, well, how about a coronavirus story? Um, but maybe not the kind of story you're expecting. Uh, this one actually has to do with face ID systems. Um, more and more of our phones rely on facial recognition to unlock them. Uh, and, you know, across large parts of Asia, we're wearing surgical masks in public if you've got a cold or any kind of illness, is quite normal. Um, this issue with facial recognition has been flagged as a problem for a while because if you're wearing a mask, you can't open your phone. But obviously, that's been a very minor issue because the number of people sick at any one time tends to be quite small. In the face of a potential pandemic like coronavirus, millions of people are suddenly feeling that tug. They're wearing these masks. They're not able to open their phones. So a US artist called Danielle Baskin came up with the idea of printing faces onto the masks. Your own face. Well, this is where it kind of gets interesting. No, she came up with the idea of using one of those AI face generators. So it's a fake face. Yeah, because you can train your phone to unlock with that masked fake face. So she actually sees it as an anti-surveillance tool as well. Uh, with face ID systems popping up all over the place, the idea of using faces that don't actually exist and can trick those systems is quite appealing. Uh, her idea, which she promoted on social media, has really taken off in China. She currently has over 2,000 individual orders for the masks, and some of them are for really large quantities, you know, of up to 10,000. Uh, and I don't think she initially even saw it as a business opportunity. It was for her much more of an art statement. So whether or not she's going to make the masks is uh, is unclear. At the moment, she can't because, you know, as we know, there's a global shortage of uh, surgical masks. But this and similar ideas are finding currency with privacy activists around the world, especially given that the legal case for many of these face tracking systems has not actually been tested in the courts in uh, in many countries. They still sit in this kind of semi-grey legal area. So, you know, this is a simple, low-tech solution to a high-tech problem. It's your two favourite things again, high and low-tech combined. I know, I'm really very, very predictable. So um, here is a more kind of solidly high-tech story. Uh, a couple of our listeners uh, might have the occasional pang of guilt when they're watching their favorite streaming service. Uh, we've been hearing for the past couple of years that streaming could account for as much as 1% of global CO2 emissions. Well, a new study suggests that that figure uh, may not be as dire as we first thought. Uh, a team under Armand Shahabi at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory in California has found that despite a 550 percent increase in demand emissions from data centers you know those huge server farms that our streams and a lot of our other data call home uh, those centers have only risen in emissions 
in around six uh, of around six percent in the same time as the demand has increased five hundred and fifty percent. Data isn't sentient, so it probably wouldn't regard anywhere as a home. I don't know why you say these things. You know that these machines are listening. Do you really want a can opener to cut off your fingers or every stream you select somehow turning into a Hugh Grant rom-com? Don't mess with the algorithms. Be kind. Rewind. So if we go back to the server homes, you see, I'm rewinding and I'm being kind. Uh, the figures contradict those found in uh, 2019 in a report by the French think tank, The Shift Project. Okay, so does that mean that we can now stream guilt-free? Well, there's a school of thought that thinks that many of the uh, data centers may have made a lot of the easy efficiency gains already. So they've introduced, you know, more efficient servers. Uh, they've moved to less power-hungry locations, that kind of thing. And while the emissions may not be as high as previously reported, they are still considerable. Uh, and of course, our demand for data service is growing exponentially. So as I mentioned earlier, 5G tech is probably going to catapult our mobile data consumption into another direction. You know, people are already talking about things like 7K resolution video streams. And of course, we're going to have things like autonomous vehicles and machines generating petaflops of data. So you may not feel so bad kicking into that friends marathon, but you know, it is maybe time to decide whether that extra kitten video is strictly necessary. Did you stop there to watch an episode of Friends? When I was doing the notes, yes. Anyway, move on. <laughs> All right. Okay. What about the case of something like the coronavirus? If more people are at home watching streaming services, wouldn't that cause a huge spike? Well, that is one of the interesting things. So, yes, staying at home and viewing the world from a screen will definitely kick those consumption rates higher. But overall, we could actually see a, a temporary drop in emissions. So we've seen some of the impacts spiralling around the globe, uh, shuttered factories, uh, people working from home, retail outlets closing down, thousands of events cancelled and postponed, uh, all these restrictions on air travel. So while data consumption peaks, we may exert less pressure overall because we're not flying and driving and entertaining and doing all of those kind of same things at the same levels. All right. I don't know if I'd even call that a streak of silver in a dark, a very dark cloud. Uh, what have we got before the break? Uh, future food. Um, regular listeners will know that this is the time to put down that fork or spoon and drop your donut in the bin. I'd like to say today will be different, but it's really not going to be. Uh, this is a great story I found on The Guardian. Uh, a team of researchers at Belgium's Ghent University is looking at an unlikely source of fat to replace butter in our cakes, biscuits, and of course, on toast. Mm. And I've known you for about 10 years now. Is it true that you don't like butter? It is true. I'm, I'm actually a pioneer of the dry sandwich, which is cheese and rocket on sourdough with maybe a dash of olive oil to uh, wet your whistle. I actually had that for dinner last night. Um, butter always tastes off for me, so I'm actually going to be happy to try this one out. The Belgian wafflers have been experimenting with fly larvae fat as a replacement. Uh, Hopefully that has the sufficient yuck factors for the listeners. Uh, black soldier fly larvae are soaked in a bowl of water and the resulting sludge, because sludge is always a good starting point for anything that we eat. Uh, the sludge is then blended and a centrifuge separates all of the stuff out. And what you're left with is fly butter. Why, Matt? Why? 
For the same reason that we're seeing insects being investigated as a sustainable and more environmentally friendly protein source, they're much less land and resource intensive than cattle. They convert food more effectively into energy, butter. Uh, they use less water. I really don't want to know, but I have to ask, how does it taste? Well, in small quantities, say up to 25% uh, uh, lava fat. And by the way, they're going to need a much better name than lava fat. So for today's show, we're going to call it monsters. Um, small quantities of monsters blended with butter in a cake were no problem. Uh, once the monsters reached more than 50%, people complained that it was accompanied by an unusual taste. Um which is really not what you want with anything made from uh, flies. Um, so that has to be sorted out. But for sure, you know, look out for cookie monsters on your supermarket shelves in the very near future. The setup to an appalling joke. Unfortunately, there'll be more of the same here on MSB after the break. We'll be right back. BFM 89.9. Billions from me. BFM 89.9. The Business Station. Welcome back to Fun Friday. My name is Jeff Sandu. So far on this episode of MSP, Science is Sick, we've heard about anti-surveillance face masks, robot uprisings, and some good news about our TV habits. Not to mention the world's most disgusting sandwich spread. So Matt, where on earth are we heading next? Well, most people would expect me to say space because that's the usual setup. I get you to say Earth and I say space. But actually, we're sticking uh, with our own planet for this particular show. Um, on the subject of which, it's not really one of today's stories, but um, the writers of an article in Nature Geoscience, which I'm sure all of our listeners subscribe to, uh, they hold that they've found evidence to suggest that about three billion years ago, the Earth was actually one big water world um, broken up by dotted islands rather than and continents. So obviously that's great news for fans of Kevin Costner and his uh, End Times documentary movie of the same name, but it also gives indications as to how the first single-cell organisms may have evolved and, of course, how different the atmosphere of the planet would have been without the soil-rich land masses. Um, you can Google the story if you want to, to know more, or you can just watch Waterworld. Um, our actual first story is, uh, is about lifespans and longevity. All right, so why women tend to live longer than men? Yeah, I mean, Instagram might give you the idea that one of the reasons for this imbalance in men and women is due to the imbalance in numbers of men and women taking selfies on the edges of cliffs and indulging in sports like free climbing and base jumping. Uh, but it seems that the actual reasons may be locked up in our chromosomes. Do we see the same kind of variations in lifespans throughout the animal kingdom? Yeah, in many species, one sex tends to outlive the other, but not necessarily in the, 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 the male-female pattern that we see in human beings. A group of Earth scientists from the University of New South Wales in Sydney has just published a paper in the Royal Society Journal uh, Biology Letters. Uh, have you had your copy this month? Um, they contend that the number of sex chromosomes actually influence lifespan. So in humans, uh, of which I apparently and sadly still am one, males have an X and a Y chromosome, uh, whereas female humans have two X chromosomes. Could you stop talking about us as though we're your test subjects? 
Well, I do prefer to avoid animal testing and, you know, my alien masters live stream human tests as Saturday Night TV. Uh, it's, for them, it's a bit like those Japanese game shows. But anyway, the, the team in Sydney has found similar patterns repeating throughout the animal, uh, the animal kingdom. Uh, I think they looked at 229 species. They looked at insects, fish, mammals, a really broad cross section. And they saw that the pattern repeated. Uh, where males had two of the same chromosome, they tended to outlive females. Where the females had uh, two of the same chromosomes, they tended to outlive the males. What's the thinking behind this? Well, it supports what's known as the unguarded X hypothesis, uh, which has just been a theory up until now. So the idea there is that where there are two of the same chromosomes, they tend to guard each other. Um, if uh, an X chromosome mutates in a, a human male... Like you? Well, I'm all mutant all of the time. It's one of the nicest things about me. But if there's a, a harmful mutation, it tends to proliferate. It spreads throughout the whole system. So when where there are two X chromosomes, uh, such as in the human female, that effect will likely not impact all of those X chromosomes. So that additional X chromosome actually adds a layer of protection. But it's not the only factor in longevity, though. No, not at all. You know, the study found overall that in species where the male has uh, the two identical chromosomes, the male outlives, the males rather outlive the females by about 7%. Where females have two of the same chromosomes, they tend to outlive males by around 20%. So there's a big disparity there. Uh, obviously, um, free climbing, silly selfies and base jumping also play a big part in those statistics. Um, but this does help us to identify the genetic factors that contribute to lifespan. But that doesn't mean that there aren't going to be a lot of other factors. Uh, for example, the role that uh, we play in parenting may be taken into account. Uh, that, of course, means that I'm going to die early because I have no experience in that at all. Um, access to food, risky behavior, um, sort of the, the influence of predators as well, lots and lots of other factors. But for scientists and billionaires looking to extend the human lifespan, it is a really interesting and useful starting point. So what's next? Some good news about flying cars. But you don't like flying cars? Yeah, so my good news is that there's bad news for flying cars. Uh, last weekend saw the final of the Go Fly prize, uh, where teams competed for a $1 million US dollar prize to create an electric vertical takeoff craft that could fly a human passenger um, for 20 minutes and uh, fly him or her approximately 10 kilometres. And it was held on Leap Day. Yep, of course, February 29th. Who would miss that opportunity? Uh, taking a leap into the sky, that, of course, is a marketing director's dream. Uh, but despite over 800 entries, none of the 24 finalists gathered at uh, NASA's Moffett Airfield in California were able to rise to the occasion sufficiently to actually secure the prize. Uh, a combination of bad weather on the second day and a lot of technical difficulties meant that no person was actually lifted off in the craft and only four unmanned vehicles actually took to the air. Any notable entries? Well, with um, you know sponsorship of this level and support from aircraft makers like Boeing and Pratt and & Whitley, it attracted as many madcap inventors as these kind of big research bodies. Um, my favourite, which I got from the New Scientist, was by a retired airline pilot from Liverpool uh, called Colin Hilton. 
he built uh, a small telephone box, a flying telephone box. Uh, you know those iconic red uh, British telephone boxes that you see in all the um, all the tourist pictures. Uh, so he built one of those that can actually fly. And his idea is that you dial a location, you enter a postcode, and the drone will then automatically fly you to that location. Uh, so far, and to me, slightly worryingly, he uses it to fly his eight-year-old son around his back garden, um, which is pretty good, though, for something that he made from parts that he's bought from the internet. Is this the end for GoFly? No, uh, not at all. I think it's probably only the, the beginning. Like I said, it's got some really big uh, backers. Um, I am slightly worried about um, some of the uh, competition CEO, a lady called Gwen Leiter's uh, visions for these craft. Um, you know, things like commuting, taxis, delivery services, uh, air ambulances. Those are all the kind of things that we can uh, imagine. Um, but she, uh, and I'm ho I hope she's joking, she hopes that this kind of uh, competition could make fictional sports like Quidditch a reality. Uh, or as the direct translation of Quidditch to my alien master's language puts it, suicide lemming fun. <laughs> all right, uh, I'd like to hear a story about fish. And that, listeners, is how you move from one story to another that has no link whatsoever. Um, although Jeff, as a big fan of virtual reality, uh, I think may like this piece. Uh, researchers at the Friedrich Miescher Institute for uh, Biomedical Research in Switzerland have put genetically engineered zebrafish into VR simulations. Uh, why? Well, that's the uh, second time you've asked me that today, and it's still a very valid question. Um, to see how they perceive the world, do they see the simulations as being real? Uh, they put the fish in special VR rigs. Now, I know that brings up really strange images, but they put them in VR rigs that kept them stationary while the simulations were run on screens inside their tanks. And this allowed the scientists to monitor the fish's neurons while putting them into different situations. Uh, what kind of situations would a fish find itself in? Well, I wouldn't be able to resist a fish walks into a bar, um, <laughs> but that's probably why I'm not a scientist. Um, no, obviously, you know, swimming type stuff, interactions with other fish. They also tried to confuse them. Uh, the fish would tack left, for example, and the researchers would change the projection to make it look as though the fish was going in the other direction, uh, which is actually a test of their reactive and planning behaviour rather than you know, the kind of joke that I'd play. <laughs> I thought you said you don't like animal testing. I, I don't, but you can't do these tests with people. They drown. Uh, even for me, that's a step too far. <laughs> what are they hoping to discover? Well, they want to see how uh, decision-making occurs neurologically and to see how those patterns in the brain may be reflected or mirrored in other species as well. Or just as importantly, understanding why they might actually be different in different species. Can we have a human brain story, Matt? We can, um, as we'll have a geek tune coming up after after Geek's Quote. How about a story about uh, music in the brain? Uh, which, of course, is a rhetorical question, because if you say no, I've got absolutely nothing else. Um, we don't really think about how complicated songs and music are. So, you know, when you hear a track by Lizzo on the radio, um, probably not so much on BFM, but you get pulled into a world of smoky R&B and soul grooves. Um, and we automatically understand the music, we understand the, the lyrics. But neuroscientists have been at a bit of a loss to explain how we actually understand those songs. 
But how would you test it? Well, that's been one of the problems because, you know, you need consistency. So a team of uh, earworms at McGill University in Canada uh, has come up with a testing method. They created 100 a cappella songs by working with uh, 10 sentences in uh, English and French set to 10 melodies. Their test group was divided between English speakers and French speakers, again, just to see if the results are going to be the same in both groups. And what they found is that we rely more heavily on the timing, I guess the rhythm of the songs, than the melody uh, to understand the words. When the researchers played with the timing, the listeners found it harder to understand the lyrics, but the melodies were still clear to them. And what makes us recognise the melodies? Well, it seems that repetition plays a key part. Ah, like this show. It seems that repetition plays a key part. Uh, by contrast, when the researchers distorted the frequencies of the songs, listeners could understand the words, but the melodies became unrecognisable. So, of course, the, the thing that you'd want to do next is test that hypothesis in an MRI. So they repeated the experiment uh, uh, and actually looked at the brain waves of the participants uh, because it's long been believed anecdotally that the lyrical and rhythmic part of songs is pro uh, processed in the left hemisphere of the brain where speech is decoded and that the music, the, the frequencies, are decoded in the right hemisphere. And that's exactly what the MRI results showed. Left brain for words, right brain for the tunes, suggesting that music is simply too complex to be processed in just one part of the brain. Is there a next stage? Well, yeah, the, the next stage will be to test with more languages, uh, especially with tonal languages like Mandarin and Vietnamese, which have that kind of musical element to them as well. Uh, and that's to see if uh, native speakers of those languages use both sides of the brain to decode music too. If they don't, it would be awesome to see MRIs of multilingual speech uh, speakers and how they process music in different languages differently. That would be, you know, absolutely amazing. Uh, but it's probably likely that the results are going to be the same or very similar. So the next time your bosses uh, complain about you listening to music at work, you can legitimately tell them that the music is giving you a brain workout. And that, of course, can only improve your performance, improve your efficiency. And, hey, wow, I've ended the show in a positive place. <laughs> there you have it. Another episode on Science is Sick. And if you missed any parts of this conversation, you can, of course, download the podcast on the BFM website, the BFM app, or you can even find it on Spotify. Uh, we'll be right back with Geek Squawks after this, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.